Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my fine friends. Welcome to the fourth episode of season four of the Tom Petty Project podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Brown. Uh, this is the podcast that digs into the entire Tom Petty catalog, song by song, album by album, and includes conversations with musicians, fans, and people connected with Tom along the way. Today's song for discussion is one I would say is in my top 20 Tom Petty compositions, possibly top 10. Um, it's definitely one that stayed in the first 10 songs in my playlist, so that I definitely get to listen to it if I'm out running and I don't know what distance I'm doing. So go check out the episode notes for a link to the song, give it a listen, then come back and rejoin me to listen to the mean, the moody, the magnificent something big. <laughs> In a 1981 interview with Melody Maker magazine, um, Tom is asked whether there is any autobiographical elements to songs like Night Watchman or Something Big. And he says, well, there has to be some of me in it or I couldn't write it. I couldn't sing it anyway. To me, it's just like people I've seen around over the years. And he goes on to relate this idea to the music industry saying, this business, it's like something big. It's like one of those seedy businesses where there's always some person where you can see no visible credentials. According to Tom, the song was written on piano, and so, as with many of the songs written that way, Tom actually plays the piano part on the recording, with Ben Mont taking on organ duties. In conversations with Tom Petty, Tom tells Paul Zolo, I played it that way because the only way I knew it was on piano, and I played it on a Wurlitzer electric. Like so many deep cuts, the song was played only sparingly, and somewhat surprisingly was not included in the set list of any of the Hard Promises tour shows. It was played sparingly in 1989 and 1992 uh, before being ever-present in the 27 shows that the band performed in 2012. And for that run of dates, the song was slung into a really bluesy arrangement, which sounds a lot like it would have been jammed out in the Mojo era, as it's very similar in that sort of swampy type of feel. Um, I'll add a link to the episode notes uh, to a great performance from the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival on April 28, 2012, so you can hear how different the approach to the song is. Anyway, let's dig into the music. Something big opens with that beautiful shimmering broken chord, followed by a little lick and then back into that same suspended chord. From digging around online, it looks like this part is being played in a, a non-standard tuning with the top E string being retuned to D rather than E. And it has an almost sort of George Harrison-esque quality to it, which sets up that moody atmosphere delightfully. Once the song kicks into gear, Stan leads in the rhythm section with a big floor tom hit and we're off. Immediately, that sleazy electric piano groove comes in to steer the song along very slick CD rails. We hear Mike Campbell's recurring guitar lick that also pervades the entire track before the guitar drops into the background for the first verse. The main musical texture in the verses is coming from Benmont's organ, with the tremolo swelling at times and the chord pattern stepping up an octave as the song moves into the chorus. Guitar and piano in that verse are simply adding a few notes, but the focus throughout this song really is the vocal. On Wikipedia and Discogs, Tom is listed as playing bass on this one, but I couldn't find anything in the official books that backs this up. It would make some sense, though, as Rom was obviously on his way out of the band at this point, so perhaps it was a case of Tom just recording the part to make sure that it was finished before Ron left, or maybe Ron was already gone when they recorded this song. As Mike is playing that little recurring lick, the bass pattern matches the movement of that lick, playing a broken chord, but it's a very subdued bass line, and it definitely feels more like the type of part that Tom would play later on the Mudcrutch records than Ron was playing on those first four albums. Yet again, Stan's drums sound huge and epic on this song. He's not beating the snot out of them, but they're given so much bass and so much reverb that they really add that ominous rumble to the whole thing. 
And one thing I'm not sure I'd noticed on this one until tonight is that on the second beat of each bar in that sort of in the first verse, there's additional percussion, most likely a conga. And then that's the congas are played throughout the, the rest of the song. And the album indicates that Phil Jones plays percussion on the entire album. So I assume it would have been him overdubbing this part rather than rather than Stan. And it's a fabulously simple drum part that Stan's playing um, with some gentle hat lifts and a simple kick snare pattern. The fills are generally straight time on the floor until he breaks pattern on the words something big, where he slows to half time on the toms and crash cymbal to emphasize that title phrase. And the congas pick up a little pace in the second verse and are adding more swing to that rhythm section. Through that first intro, verse and chorus, the mood of the song is most definitely set and this track leans heavily into that mood. It's a very film noir, gothic type of feel and it makes me think of the video game LA Noir, for any of you gamers out there, um, which in front of you aren't. Uh, it's set in LA in the late 40s and it's a gritty sort of cop drama set in various locations around the city and is undercut with a very sinister feeling of sort of impending dread um, and danger. You get the same type of feel early on in this song, and it doesn't need any minor chords to provide that type of suspense and unease, relying instead on open fifths and, again, those suspended notes that fill in the background on guitar and piano, but uh, never fully resolve into major keys. As we head into the second verse, Benmont's organ is brought forward in the mix a little more, and he moves up the octaves earlier and, again, leans into that tremolo. The second chorus then sees the organ center into a real treble-heavy space that ratchets up that tension yet another notch, and Stan also adds more of a fill into that, co- that second chorus to, again, build that anxiety to even higher levels. All that delicious tension uh, within the song that's built to this point with the sultry piano and the menacing organ and, you know, those sort of low toms that uh, Stan's playing, accompanied by Tom's vocal delivery, is released majestically during the bridge. In the live version I'll be adding to the episode notes, the band completely replaces this section with an extended sort of jam guitar solo shared between Tom and Mike over the verse uh, chord pattern. And it works really well for that bluesy version, but on the recording, that break to the full major chords is like a ray of sun slicing a clean line through the clouds. Stan goes gently to the ride cymbal before thundering down another booming tom fill back into the main chord progression. And the tension is released once more with that same descending chord progression in the major key before heading back into the main riff for one last time. And rather than any sort of guitar solo in this middle eight, we instead get accents coming in from the electric piano, and this just gives the song a really grimy kind of grubbiness to it. And that's not to say that a grungy blues guitar solo wouldn't have worked, but it wouldn't have worked as well as that piano, I don't think. As the bridge drops into that major chord progression for the last time, Stan's fill coming out of the bridge is still one of my all-time favourite bits of textural, I'll call it textural drumming, um, as it gives the impression of a car rolling into a ditch or a, a body rolling down a flight of stairs. And going into that last verse, it's a great little creative device to put you in the right headspace for the grisly conclusion to the song. Also heading into that last verse, you get sort of a Hitchcockian wail of Benmont's organ in the right channel. It's really high and it's really trebly. The last verse gets you holding your breath as the drums drop out to just the kick and the hats. The piano's also taken out and the organ is just pairs of notes now low down providing that incredible suspense underneath those lyrics. And I'll talk about the story once I get to the to the vocals and the lyrics, but the way the song frames the start of that last verse is just masterful. It was Monday when the day maids found the still made bed, all except the pillows that lay stacked up at the head. That's an incredibly powerful image, and the music really lets the words punch home the conclusion to the song. Alrighty, folks, you know what it's time for, don't you? It's time for some petty trivia. 
Last week's trivia question was this. At which Los Angeles venue was 1985's Pack Up the Plantation primarily recorded? The answer, as many of you guessed, is the Wiltern Theatre. The beautiful 12-story Art Deco building is an iconic landmark in LA, situated at the corner of Wilshire Boulevard and Western Avenue at the western edge of the city's Koreatown. Ten of the 16 tracks of the Heartbreakers' first full live album were recorded at the venue on August 7th, 1985. And some notable songs that didn't make the cut from that performance, however, were Don't Come Around Here No More, Don't Do Me Like That, and fan favourite Spike. Your question for this week is this. Tom's paternal grandfather, William Kyler Petty, was better known by which nickname, which would eventually make its way into the lyrics for a song from 2010's bluesy jam album, Mojo. Okay, back to the song. Tom really, really leans into the drawl in this one and bends those syllables almost to breaking point at times. He never comes out of that low register, and as with everything else, that decision just gives the song so much more menace. The vocal's kept nice and low, and harmonies are added for emphasis during the choruses, but this is Tom inhabiting a place and a time in his mind and drawing the characters in the story out of himself vocally. Yet another impeccable, unique performance from a master vocalist. Last week, I said the. Night Watchman is definitely one of my favourite Heartbreakers songs from that early period. The lyrics to this one are in my top 10 all time, uh, and it's one of my very favourite Tom Petty songs. I just instantly connected with the CD vibe of them, and I think that it could be partially coming from the fact that I'm pretty sure that I heard, well, no, I know that I heard Tweeter and the Monkey Man before I heard something big, and they have a very loose sort of connected feeling in my mind, that sort of the framing of the story and the, and the sort of the characters and, the, and their personalities. Um, in conversations with Tom Petty, Paul Zolo tells Tom that something big is a great use of a title and asks if it was fun to write. Tom says, yeah, it was tremendous fun because it was kind of a little movie and it was one of my first attempts at making characters. So I got into it and it was fun. I could quote basically every line in this song as an example of Tom's lyrics at their best. Of course, we're introduced to Speedball and the Night Clerk. We have the exchange between the two where Speedball is looking to find some booze, which is ultimately thwarted. So instead, he asks for an outside line. But the song opens on one of my all-time favourite lyrics. It didn't feel like Sunday. It didn't feel like June. You can imagine Kerouac or Steinbeck or even Stephen King maybe writing something like that to open up a you know a sinister tale. Um, didn't feel like Sunday. Maybe it's busier than usual. Maybe it's commenting that there's no spirituality in the air. Didn't feel like June. Maybe it's raining and chilly outside rather than hot and dry. You know, these are all sort of images that he sort of just drops into our minds and lets us do the work with. When he met his silent partner in that lonely corner room, we're not privy to who the partner is or what the pair are up to or what they discuss. And then the sequencing of the words in that next line that overlooked the marquee of the plaza all adult. You know, just to get that to, to rhyme and to put that together sonically, I think that's just a brilliant, brilliant line. And it's also such a vivid visual image. You know, you can almost see out of the motel window across to the red neon of a dilapidated old sex shop, you know. Uh, we know for sure that we're in a seedy part of town and that likely this corner room is not part of a five-star setup. And he was not looking for romance, just someone he could trust. So clearly Speedball needs help with whatever scheme he's cooking up when he's trying to find it. The second verse sees that exchange between Speedball and the night clerk, which leaves the former disappointed. And as contact is made on the outside line, we're led into that last verse. Again, the conclusion of the song doesn't make for good reading for our old friend. As the day maids find the still made bed. Again, what a brilliant lyrical detail. There could have been any number of adjectives to describe the bed, but still made gives the scene such a clear image 
and a body on a made bed rather than one that's been slept in suggests that all speedball may have been lying there all night until the day maids happened across him. I assume that he's laying dead on that bed as one of the maids simply comments, I know I've seen his face, I wonder who he is. And her colleague replies with the world-weary line, probably just another clown working on something big, as if it's a scene they've seen a thousand times. So that implied resolution of the song, we can sort of, I think we can reasonably assume that whoever Speedball called was the agent of his eventual and probably permanent demise, and that maybe our hero, or maybe anti-hero, got himself involved in something far too big for him, maybe a drug deal or a gang-related hit or something like that. Um, at least, and this is the beauty of the song, that's the image that it conjures up in my mind. Other people may see it from an entirely different angle, and that's why I love this song and music generally so, so much. Okay, folks, that's all for this week. Um, if Night Watchman was Tom settling into character-building mode, something big was the equivalent of him hiring a full movie studio and directing his first short film. Wouldn't it be great if someone actually wrote a treatment of something big using the character names and the general plot? I know there's not much to go on, but there's surely enough for some creative brain. You could even bring in the Night Watchman and maybe a love interest from Insider. Or, you know, maybe I'll take this on one day, as if I need another Tom Petty-related project. As you can probably guess, I absolutely adore this song. It's all about the mood and the story. It's tense, it's a complete short story with a beginning, middle and end, and yet it's still vague enough that you can colour in a lot of the picture yourself and add in any details that you sort of that come to your mind. Of course, something big for me is a 10 out of 10 again. I've often said that I rate Hard Promises ever so slightly higher than Damn the Torpedoes, but in doing the episodes for the last album, I was curious whether I would still feel that way. Now, in terms of side one of the albums so far, I think that assertion is holding up. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Tom Petty Project and on Twitter at Tom Petty Project. And of course, you can find me on YouTube. So go follow, like, subscribe as applicable, and please leave a review or a rating if you haven't done that already. Um, keep talking to me on social media. Um, again, if I don't reply on Instagram as quickly as I should do, maybe, I apologize, but it's the one that I use least. Um, as a reminder, the Tom Petty Project is not affiliated with the Tom Petty Estate in any way. And when you're looking for Tom's music, please visit official channels like their Tom Petty YouTube channel or any of the sort of authorized streaming platforms um, when you're trying to find, uh, find, find that music. And also, again, please go to TomPetty.com for official merchandise. Don't forget to check out the Tom Petty Nation and Tom Petty Fans Forever groups on Facebook. Um, they're a great place to hang out and there's lots of wonderful, wonderful people in there. And I'll give a quick shout out because at time of recording, it is Keith Evelyn's birthday. Um, he is the founder of Tom Petty Nation and keeps everything ticking over there. And he's just a fantastic, wonderful human being and a huge, huge, huge Tom Petty fan, needless to say. Until we meet again next week, keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind. Try to say I love you to someone at least once a day. Stay safe and healthy, and I'll be back with you next week to talk about a song that resonates with me for very specific personal reasons. The magnificent closing track to side one of Hard Promises, King's Road. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.